So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. Uh, lovely to hear loads of you getting in touch to say how much you've been enjoying the show recently. Jack and Sharon and Charles as well, who all tweeted me just to say that they were excited to go and see Lioness on tour. That's the Amy Winehouse act that we interviewed a few weeks ago, just because they heard Emma on the show. Uh, that is really great to hear. I also love it, by the way. Um, when 18 months later, some of you guys still get in touch to say you're going to recreate my burger tasting trip in San Francisco. Uh, do that. Go to Causewell's. I still fantasize about it. Uh, regarding last week's uh, effort, uh, Rob was the first phone pedant to get in touch following my mention in the zeitgeist that it was the Nokia 3210 that featured in the Matrix. Of course, it was the Nokia 8110. I did actually know as soon as I said it uh, that I'd made a mistake, but I didn't want to correct myself and look vulnerable in front of Ollie Peart because that would ruin my uh, superiority, which is what enables me to bully him. Uh, but you are right, Rob, to point that out, and you can have an extra Nokia 8110 fact on me. It was also the first Nokia phone with monochrome graphic LCD. I bet that kind of thing makes you wet, Rob. Uh, this week's interview is, I'm, I'm going to say it, my favourite so far of the series. It's with a man called Wayne, who was a child soldier in the British Army. Now, I know that terminology in itself is controversial. We tend not to talk about child soldiers. We tend to think of that as something that despotic nations, perhaps in Africa or something, might resort to during a civil war. But it is a fact that the British Army does recruit 16 to 18-year-olds, and Wayne was one of them. And his story is searingly honest and very relatable, and I think it does make you question why, in 2017, we are still going into schools to sell army careers, rather than allowing adults to make informed decisions about taking a risk to defend our country. Uh, it is fascinating stuff. Uh, elsewhere on today's show, you will learn what a REMF is, R-E-M-F, it's an acronym. Uh, you'll learn what a fursona is, and you'll learn, finally, where is the pervert capital of Britain? Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. I was nervous, but I had a good nervous, I guess. Like, like going on a date rather than going to death row. <laughs> What's it like joining the army the moment you turn 60. Actually, a lot of people who are part of the furry fandom cite a Disney's Robin Hood. And Alex Fox goes riding through the Glen to discover the erotic art known as Yif. 
But first, with the zeitgeist, it's the man who just confessed to me off mic that he's been inhaling paint fumes all weekend and he's worried about his mental state. It's Ollie Pitt. What have you got for us this week, Ollie? Slow-grown chicken. I love all three words. What's mm-hmm. the trend? So chickens are grown so efficiently now that their breasts are heavier than a whole chicken was in the 1950s. That's a good fact. That is a good fact, isn't it? But there's a I mean, chat- it's not good for chickens. No, it's not good for chickens. It's, it's an awful. interesting sort of no such thing as a fish type fact. Well, this is the awful thing. The efficiencies are so good uh, in terms of growing uh, these high-performance chickens that actually disease and things like that are, are, are rife in intensive farming. Mm-hmm. So the trend in America is for slow-grown chickens. Doesn't this mean a lot more expensive? Yes. They need more feed. Uh, they take more time to grow. And they are ultimately smaller. It's less efficient. But it's about the quality of the meat. And by a curious coincidence this week... Simon Amstel has released a film on the BBC iPlayer called Carnage, which is all about veganism. It is brilliant. Oh, is it? Oh, good. It's absolutely fantastic. But it makes a a really serious point about how our attitudes towards meat consumption today... It basically highlights how we're marketed meat and how it's just acceptable for us to consume meat on such massive quantities. There There are people who have meat three meals a day. Yeah, absolutely. And Which, that, not... for me I, as well, I find that really weird. Yeah. That, that is weird to me. But there are days where I've done that without thinking about it. There have been days where I've had a full, full English breakfast, mm. a sandwich for lunch, and meat and two potatoes in the evening, and not thought, oh, I'm eating loads of meat. The film starts in the year 2067. There's a load of these teenagers. They're all very compassionate, and they just can't understand why we would have eaten meat. They're all vegans now. And to tell the story, he goes back to 1947 and then we we follow it all the way up through to present day and then on to 2067. And it's when it gets to the present day that it is the most striking. And I I found it really profound. I really liked it. And I am seriously questioning my own eating habits. Is that the mission of the film, do you think? It's not just a satire. It's supposed to make you think about vegetarianism. Yeah, absolutely. It's supposed to make you a vegan. Yes, it's, well, I think what it's supposed to do is just highlight our attitudes towards the consumption of meat more than anything. It's not saying, be a vegan, you idiot. It's actually really compassionate to meat eaters. It's actually saying, look, you, you were sold this ideal of meat eating. You didn't know what you were being sold kind of thing. And you, you, were just, you just accepted it because you were told that it was fine. I'm going to say, I'm going to say this in, in the podcast today because I feel like it will commit me to it. From today, I'm going to become a vegetarian. Not quite vegan. From today, you're going to become a vegetarian? Yes. It, 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 we did actually just meet for lunch and you had falafel. Yes. Was that the beginning of your vegetarianism? Absolutely, yeah. So we talked about all kinds of things. We talked about you painting skirting boards. Yep. We talked about places to walk around Copenhagen. You didn't mention, oh, and by the way, huge life changes just happened in front of your eyes. This falafel represents the absence of offal. Well, I had to, I had to save it for the podcast. Didn't wow, I? you're saving not? all your big life experiences for this. I just, do you know what? No, it, I'm, I'm pleased. It was so like, I didn't expect it. To change my mind in that way. I've always questioned my meat eating anyway. Now there's probably vegans listening going, well, why don't you become a vegan? Because just baby steps, alright? Anyway, it's on BBC iPlayer, it's called Carnage, and it's up for, it says on there, for the next year. So you've got plenty of time to watch it. It's brilliant. Alright, good luck, and we'll check in. Next week. Oh, this brilliant burger the other night. Let's see whether it's as successful as your French learning from Series <laughs> 2. What else have we got? Meme makeup. Meme makeup. Yeah, meme makeup. Okay. According to BuzzFeed, this was a, a trend started by at uh, Tybrows on Twitter, and uh, this is a girl, and she posted a side-by-side picture of uh, the meme Kermit drinking tea. Have you seen that? Is it a freeze from the Muppets of Kermit drinking some tea? Now, 
They're painting those on their eyelids. There's Crying Kim. Have you seen Crying Kim? No, I haven't seen Crying Kim, no. It's Kim Kardashian crying. Okay. That's on someone's eyebrows. Patrick Starr from Spongebob. So I have a prediction. I feel like internet culture is going to seep its way into our everyday lives without the need of a screen, Ollie. And one of the ways I think more than anything else it's going to happen, particularly with memes, is I think it's going to become part of everyday conversation. For well, example... It sort of already has, if you think about, like, emoji. Yeah. And yeah. that's basically internet culture that now my grandma texts me, although that does involve a screen. But she could potentially, in real life, I could say, how are you? And she could stick her tongue out and put her head to one side. Yes, exactly. But usually if a 90-year-old no. does that, it's cause for concern. No, this is what, I, th- this is what I think is going to happen. Right. I think people are going to start talking in, uh, using emojis and memes as, like, verbs. That's what they're going to do. I mean, people do, though, don't they? People do, like, people say... I mean, like wankers say, hashtag irony. And sad face. People say, people say that. Mm. Oh, I just saw that terrible thing the other day. Sad face. Yeah, but the thing is, though, they are doing it knowingly, aren't they? If you say sad you face... Do it unknowingly. No, no, but you're making an ironic joke, aren't you? What you're saying is, I'm cool and I understand internet culture. So are you. We realise that's shallow. Let's append it to a real-life conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's funny to do that. But what you're saying is eventually people will stop doing it ironically. Yes. And people will actually, teenagers growing up now, might, when they're our age, genuinely say, my father's died sad face. No. I mean, that is what you're predicting. And I'm not sure you're wrong. In 15 years' time, we will have this conversation again, and we might even be doing the same thing. We might do it, yeah. Happy face, Ollie. Well, people do say, like, OMG, da-da-da, and that's not ironic. (laughs) Crying with laughter. Lol. Okay, what's your (laughs) final trend, Ollie? Perverts. (laughs) (laughs) For some very strange reason, the Home Office has been compiling some data. This is going well so far. Published in The Sun. Right. And uh, they've identified the pervert capital of Britain. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Do you want to hazard a guess as to where it is? Um, Slough. Begins with the desk. On the M4 corridor as well. Oh, I don't know. It's like Surrey South, isn't it? Sussex is South. I can't think what begins with an S now that's not Slough. Think more, think more Cotswold way. Um, I don't know. It's not helping you, is it? No, well, a little bit. Swindon. Anyway, I thought... No, but what, Before you move on to whatever ridiculous game you've shoehorned into this feature. <laughs> what? Why have they... Why? Stats suggest one in every 2,310 people in Swindon are an offender. That's three times higher than the national average. Okay, all right. There you go. Good, that's the stat I wanted. Oh, good. Fine, now give us your shit game. What? It's not a shit game. What are the rules? They named the top ten towns for pervs. Yeah. And all I want you to do is try and name as many of those towns as you can and explain why you've chosen that town. <sighs> Come on. Okay, it's, right. Okay. Yeovil. No. Why would you have said Yeovil? Because it sounds pervy. Uh, Wales. Somewhere in Wales. <laughs> Just Wales. All of Wales is full of pervs. I did not You're, say that. You are all a bunch of pervy no, Wales. It was more that I was thinking if I was a sex offender. I'd live in Wales. <laughs> I would move to a more remote part of the country, so that's why I would probably move to the countryside in Wales. And then I thought, well, what town is near that? Actually, it's going to be Cardiff, so that's why I said Cardiff. That's weird, isn't it? If you're a perv, you'd move to... Answer my question. Is Wales in the top ten? No. Right, okay. Think of university towns. Cambridge. Yes. Cambridge is a pervert town, isn't it? Yeah, Cambridge is a pervy town. Oxford's there too. Is it? It is. Interesting. I wonder if that's students. Are they all all university towns? Bristol? No. Manchester? No. Manchester's not there. (laughs) How can Manchester not be there? That's a major conurbation. Everyone in Manchester's (laughs) like, you bastard. No, no, but... 
there's a lot of people live in Manchester. Exp- explain to me why you think Manchester would be at the top of the perv list. I didn't say that. You've just implied I that Manchester. You were, you're surprised it's, it's a major not major in- conurbation, as is Cardiff. Okay, I'll give you the list. Ready? Right, yeah. In at ten. Camden, Hackney, Westminster. Okay. Yeah. You've got Blackpool, Norwich. Does that surprise you? That does surprise me. Yeah. You be careful what you say because you work up there sometimes, don't you? No, I don't know. No, I've never been to Norwich. Oh. No, you're literally just confusing my local radio work for that of Alan Partridge. Oh, okay. Milton Keynes. Hmm. Lots of roundabouts. Don't know why that would... Uh... Lots of shoppers in Milton Keynes. And Hull. Hull. Yeah. European city of culture. Well, and, and pervs. <laughs> okay. Good to know. If you are listening anywhere in the UK that wasn't featured in the pervert list and you're sad about that, uh, or if you have a trend that you'd like to suggest for a future edition of The Zeitgeist, then you can tweet Ollie. At the modern man. Yeah. M-A-N-N. Yeah. Or alternatively, just try and get your city higher up in the rankings for next year <laughs> and then you might get into the podcast don't do that this podcast is free to download but it isn't free to produce if you like it why not buy us a beer you'd do it if you met us in the pub wouldn't you and guess what a virtual pint on our website costs the same as a real pint £3.47 That is the average cost of a pint of beer in the UK, just over $4. Using the secure form on our website, you can pledge that per month, or you can make us a one-off donation of any amount you choose via PayPal. Every payment you make goes directly towards supporting this independent podcast you like. Keep the shows coming at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Just click Beer Money. Thanks. Now, when you were an adolescent, what was it that you most wanted to be when you grew up? I didn't want to be a podcaster because podcasting hadn't been invented yet. It's very hard, isn't it, to plot out the rest of your life when you're still in school uniform. And yet, preparing to join the forces, a truly life-changing decision, is presented to school children as a career option, and arguably not always with the most realistic depiction of what that life entails from the age of 16. Wayne Sharrocks was even younger when he first had the idea of a forces career because he was raised in an army family. When I was born, I think my dad was a corporal. Yeah, we moved every two years. It was like a two-year postings he'd do. He'd often go away to do things like um, train recruits or different postings that he did. And we'd sort of follow him around. I didn't know what the army was or what it did, but I knew it was something good, you know, because my dad did it. And also, when he used to go away, I used to ask him, you know, what, what, why are you going away like to Northern Ireland? You go to Northern Ireland quite a lot. And he would say, you know, I'm off to fight the baddies. It's like this sense of, you know, when you're younger, you play kids, don't you? There's Batman, who's the goodie, and then there's a Joker, who's the baddie. And it's that simple when you're a kid, you know. So my dad was the goodie, and we was, you know, the army was goodies. I never really thought about joining the army until I was about 13, 14. And then you sort of put in this position, aren't you, where you have to make decisions for the rest of your life. And What? You mean like choosing your GCSEs? Yeah, yeah. So at my school, I was more interested in like anything other than school, really. I wasn't interested in academics. You know, the way I saw it, the, the we was all put in sets. So set one would be the A-star students and set five would be the people scraping a pass. And, that, and I was in the set five type people. So I knew I wasn't ever going to have a, a really good career in something academic. But I was, you know, I was fit. I was really into rock climbing and running and stuff like that. But 13 is still early to be thinking about that. 
I mean, yeah. people who are more academically minded, they think, what am I going to do for my GCSEs? Then what yeah. am I going to do for my A-levels? Then they'll think, yeah. should I go to university or should I get a career? But you're thinking yeah. about that five years earlier. And also, when you're a kid, there's also this aspect of like, um, it's probably a, probably a more a masculine thing, but there's always this aspect of, uh, he's the toughest kid in school and I, I, you, know, you never want to be the weakest kid, do you? And joining the army is kind of like this, um, being a... I won't say being a tough guy, but he's making yourself something. No one can disrespect you if you're a soldier, you know. You're seen as, like, a strong man. You want to become a man, don't you, at that sort of age? I know the exact day I decided to join the army, and I was around, I think I was 14, and I was watching a thing on the Iraq war, so the Iraq war just kicked off, you know, after 9-11 and all that type of stuff. Operation Enduring Freedom, and this Americans are calling it, and, you know, this fight against terror and all this, and I thought, you know, this is something I could really do. I can't do this academic, so I'm not going to do anything in that. But this is something I can do, and I reckon I could do well in it. And I just wanted to do something good, I guess, for my country. After that, I saw all careers, apart from the army, is completely superfluous, you know. I was so hyper-focused on, you know, joining the army and going to war. That's all I cared about. You know, going to school, I didn't listen in school because I didn't need any qualifications to join the army. I knew that. I knew I was fit enough to join. And then also, my dad went to Iraq as well, which I think probably focused me even more going to his camp and seeing all the soldiers and they were in training to go to Iraq and stuff and then he'd bring back all his new equipment like the desert camouflage and stuff and I'd be going for all that and at the same time I was giving all these like um recruitment DVDs and I'd watch these on repeat on this little DVD player about you know the infantry soldiers and you know all the different careers you could have in the army who gave you the DVDs my my dad (laughs) I think I, I must have asked for him and so what was the date that you were focused on did you know when you turned 16 you can do something about this. Yeah, so I think it's 15 years and nine months, which is when you can first apply. Actually, one of my friends at school went before me and he passed the selection. And I thought, right, if he can pass, I'm definitely passing. I was fitter than him. I really, I knew more about the army than him. I was like more keen on it. So I went to selection. I actually failed my medical because for some reason, I told him I had migraines and I used to go blind in a bit of my eye, which is true, Mm. which I didn't realise would... um, make you not eligible for the army because if I'd have known I would have lied about it <laughs> and that was the most devastating thing ever I remember ringing, ringing home and almost in tears saying you know I failed selection and I had to go back to school and people were you know looking at me and I thought I was a failure and all this but again hyper focused me on next time I go I'm going to pass and I'm going to do really well I ended up doing it at 17 from Belfast and I passed and I mean you still see don't you adverts targeted clearly at people who are coming towards sort of sixth form age yeah, yeah, saying basically, you know, join our team, be the best. Yeah. It yeah. is about working together. It's about being the ultimate machine. That's yeah. the stuff that was drawing you in. Yeah, it was all that type of aspect of it. Also, moving away from home, having your own money, being independent. It's this, I think it's this thing about going away and being your own person and becoming a man. And also going to war, which really interests me. What were you imagining that would be like? The only thing you can reference it to is either films like war films or games that you've played and they're all kind of, you know, a really clean, you know, they usually get shot, they just fall over and that's it. There's no real like, screaming, there's no blood, there's no gut, or there might be gore, it depends on what age the film is maybe. You know, and the same in games, when you shoot someone, they usually just fall on and then just disappear, you know. There's none of this like bodies piling up all over the screen, is there? Okay, so you got accepted and then your training begins for real. Yeah. What was that like? <laughs> the first thing I noticed is probably the way people spoke to me, so... Uh, I was walking with all my kit and this Land Rover p- pulled up just before I got to camp and said, are you are you joining today? And I was like, yeah. And he said, right, get in. When I got in the Land Rover, he said, right, what's your name? And I said, Wayne. He goes, I don't give a shit about your first name. What's your second name? And I remember being really shocked thinking, oh, hang on a sec. And so I said, Sharrocks. 
And he's like, where are you from? And I said, Northern Ireland. And he said, you don't sound very fucking Irish. And I, you know, I was just really shocked at the way he's speaking to me. What the British Army would say military training is, is they would say it's um, a way of breaking a person down and building them back up with the values and standards of the British Army. So that's selfless commitment, integrity, respect for others, loyalty, courage, and discipline. And these are beaten into you, basically. And the reason I know those off by heart is because I didn't know it once. And, you know, I was made to know it again. <laughs> and um, so they want you to follow orders. That's the one of the main things the army wants you to do. But the important part of that is they want you to follow these orders without questioning them. Mm. So one way of getting everyone to follow orders without question at the same time would be something like drill, which is a way of getting a body of men to do the same thing at the same time. So you've all seen outside like Buckingham Palace where people are marching all exactly the same. And so what they'll say is, I'll give you an order, say turn left, and they expect you to all do it. If one person messes up, then you'll be brutally punished. And also at the start of training, they won't just punish one person, but they'll punish the whole squad. So you don't want to be that person who's getting the whole squad punished, you know. If you are the one that's getting everyone beasted, then you're going to be ostracized. And either two things are going to happen. You're going to, one, people will get around you and say, right, come on, I'll teach you how to do this drill better, or teach you how to do this weapon drill better whatever it is you're messing up on or another thing that'll happen is you'll be beaten up or bullied until you leave because you're getting everyone punished you know they want you to be extremely loyal to your unit so for instance i was in a regiment called the rifles which is just an infantry regiment and you're not actually given your regimental cap badge and your know, stable belt when you first join you're given a camouflage cap which they call like a crow cap or a cunt cap is what they call it so <laughs> you instantly want to do anything to get rid of this cap and be given your regimental stuff because everybody that's in the, the the crow caps are all looked down on, you know, by the other recruits. So you instantly want to get out of that and that's the worst, that's the lowest of the low in the recruit training. So you'll do anything to get out of that and that may include, you know, if someone told you to take all your clothes off and run around the block, you know, you'd do it. Once you get your cap badge, which you're insanely proud of now because you've earned it after this, like, six weeks of shit you've just gone through, you're also encouraged to hate other cap badges. So, you know... Your cat badge is the greatest cat badge. We're the best regiment in the British Army. Everybody else is lower than us. And even lower than the infantry regiments would be non-infantry regiments. And we call them remps. So like rear echelon motherfuckers. So these are the people that didn't even go to the front line and fight. Or there wasn't war fighters or, you know, that type of thing. They'd be like the engineers or mechanics, that type of thing. But even lower than that would be civilians. So civilians were the lowest of the low. We call them like civvy cunts or, you know, civvy bastards, whatever. So by the, by the time you've got this cat badge, this this group that you're in and this regiment becomes your family because your family are now civvies. They're lower than they're lower than what you are. The, the, so the whole world that you've just lived in becomes lower. And you know, being a civilian would be the ultimate failure now. You know, basically become extremely loyal to this unit. And I've got a, a regimental cat badge on my chest. You know, I got that done at eighteen because it a meant tattoo. that much. A tattoo, yeah. You know, because it meant that much to me, you know, it was literally my life. This regiment was my life, you know. Were you one of the youngest? Yeah, so I was 17, just old enough to join adult training. And I never even drank before I joined the army, you know. I come from quite a, um, I don't know, I guess I was fairly naive looking back on it, you know. And then I was joining the army and a lot of people were, you know, 25 to 30-odd. who'd, You know, some of them like committed crimes or been to prison or, you know, some people apparently were drug dealers in London, all this type of stuff. So there's all these different types of personalities. You know, I was... A small, skinny, seventeen-year-old kid. You know, I wore glasses at the time. One, one of the things the training staff actually did was take my glasses off me, and they gave me these army-issued glasses, like these big Joe Ninety-looking things, just 
to try and break me basically like, afterwards they told my mum the only way they could get to me was by these glasses and I broke those glasses you know obviously on purpose to get rid of them but then they got me some even worse ones which were like tortoise shell had you ever been in love at that point no no you were a virgin um, yeah when I first joined the army I was yeah yeah because again, like in a teenage boy's life, that's a big deal for most people. Yeah, yeah. But for you, it was about getting to Iraq. For me, yeah, all I cared about was getting to Iraq. Yeah. Would you say you were bloodthirsty now, looking at it? Yeah, massively. Yeah. Well, have you ever seen bayonet training? A bayonet is um, basically a knife on the end of a rifle. So for really, really close quarter battle, you'd stab, you'd literally stab the person with the end of your rifle. They start shouting at you, "What makes the grass glow?" And you repeat, "Blood, blood, blood." But like, if you can imagine a whole platoon of people shouting that. And it's just this whole idea. So, yeah, it's definitely bloodthirsty. I was just obsessed. There's any way I could call it. We're going to war and fighting the enemy. That's all I cared about. Okay, so when did your opportunity come? The first thing I did is went to the Falklands and did seven weeks out there. I was I was nervous, but in a good nervous, I guess. Like like going on a date rather than going to death row. <laughs> Had you ever been abroad much at that age? I'd been to Northern Ireland. Yeah, I'd lived in Germany when I was a kid, but that was it. I'd never been abroad on a holiday or anything like that. So... The Falklands is a yeah. bit of a headfuck of a place, isn't it? It's horrible, yeah. <laughs> and we went in the winter as well, and it was like minus ridiculous amounts. Yeah, it was horrible. But um, at the time, you know, I loved it because, you know, I was soldiering. I was, you know, with my new battalion. Also, I had something to prove, you know, because I was a new soldier. I wanted to be seen as being good. So, you know, I really liked it, yeah. The training started ramping up to go to uh, Afghan in 2009. And presumably that was very exciting. Yeah, yeah, because it's what you wanted to do. I remember me and my friends all, you know, being constantly excited that we we've been putting these. This this is the company, and we're, oh, finally we've been putting the company that we're going to be going to Afghan with. I can't wait, and and also being a soldier that hadn't been in conflict in an infantry battalion, you want to get rid of that as soon as you can, you know, because that's like being I don't know, like you say, being a virgin or something, you know, amongst your mates. You know, you really want to be this guy that's been to war and got a medal. You know, you don't want to be walking around the only one without a medal or something. So tell me about Afghanistan. So, How did you get there? By plane, yeah. <laughs> but from an RAF airport? Yeah, so you go from Bryce Norton, yeah. Sort of like a civvy plane, but with all the luxuries gone from it, I guess, is what it's like. It's just seats in a plane, and you're all crammed on with your body armour and your helmet. And then, so you fly over, and when you get towards Afghan, you'll have to put your body armour and helmet, and all the lights go off and stuff like that, which is, you know, fairly exciting if you've not done it before. Mm. And then you get there. You know, I, I wasn't with a, a normal infantry battalion, then I was with something called the Special Forces Support Group, so we sort of was on our own we was based in our own camp and we would only go on specific operations and you know we felt really really special and how much political understanding did you have of who the enemy was was it the taliban or was it anyone who sides against the british army well yeah it was anyone that sides against the british army yeah at that time it was you know the taliban you're just enemy you know whoever you was told was the enemy is the enemy that's it you just follow orders without question if you're told blah 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 is the enemy and that he's the enemy that's it there's no question because late last decade by this point we're being told in the press that the British are essentially peacekeeping out there and holding on to Helmand province. Yeah. We're not being told they're there to go and kill the Taliban. I don't know. I can only speak from an infantry perspective. And the infantry are tra- trained to close and kill the enemy. And once you are so hyper-focused on that, then you get sent to a war zone. The only thing you're thinking about is attacking and killing the enemy. You know, and These people are different colours, a different culture that you've been told is wrong. You've been told that these people are out to get you. You've been told everyone's suspicious. And you know, if I told you that there's going to be a car today that parks outside that's going to have a bomb in it. I, I could be lying, but every single car that parked outside there all day, you'd be twitching and looking at it and thinking it was suspicious. Everything would be suspicious about it, you know. So you're just in that sort of mindset where everything's the enemy. Well, I remember the first time coming into contact with the enemy was on this, like, so I was in vehicles on a big 50 cal, which is like 
designed to take out air, air aircraft and you know have big vehicles. I just remember thinking that how how much it was like the ranges. Weirdly, like, I didn't feel any connection to anything other than I was just doing drills that I'd learned on the ranges. This whole idea of repetition through training. And I remember thinking being actually quite freaked out in a way that because I always imagined that oh, this is the ranges, but it'll feel different when it's for real. Mm. But I remember feeling how much it didn't feel any different to the ranges. I always imagined like. If I saw a person down the sights and shot them, it'd feel weird or, you know, I'd have some sort of emotion. But, you know, I didn't. It was just like targets on a range. But there was there was one time that strikes me that this is on my first tour as well. We was on like a, a vehicle patrol and I was the lead vehicle. And inside the vehicle was the, the B Company OC who's like in charge of the next company who's going to come out and relieve us. So we would be on this big road and vehicles would come towards us. And normally if a vehicle come towards, we'd like gesture with our hands to move to the side of the road and normally they'd do it. But if they didn't do it, we'd fire this like mini flare in the air and then they'd realise and move out the way. But this vehicle like kept on coming and coming and coming. You've been told and you're constantly hearing about things that car bombs, you know, so this vehicle's going to come and ram your car and blow you up. And the B Company OCs in this van, if I was in charge of you know being top cover on this vehicle and didn't shoot this car, that's not good. So I decided to like do a warning shot and then still wasn't stopping. So I shot through the window of this car and I veered off the road. But as, as it veered off the road, I sort of turned to the side and had a look, and there was just like um, an Afghan family in there, you know. There, was, there wasn't any terrorist threat or anything like that. And that's something that always plays in my mind. Like, I didn't do anything wrong. As in, I didn't do anything wrong to the rules of engagement or what I was told to do on my job. That was exactly what I was supposed to do. But, you know, morally, it was wrong, you know. So, yeah, that's quite a hard thing I, I do think about. Were they alive, though? I don't know. You just drove past? Yeah, we just drove past. I never heard anything about it again. That was it. But I would assume that, yeah, I must have got someone because it went straight through. I remember seeing the, the bullets go up the windscreen. And if it didn't shoot someone, I'd be surprised. You know, People got out of the vehicle and sort of looked at me. Like, obviously, everyone knew what I did. I just sort of looked at them, didn't say anything, just walked off. You know, I felt like the big I am at the time. Like, yeah, I'd done my job and shown that I was, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't scared of doing shit like that. And But, yeah, nothing was ever said about it again. Your tour finished, you came back, and you went on a second tour. I went back again, yeah, in 2011. So that tour was a lot different to the first tour. So we was given, yeah, not very decent equipment. We were just given the bog standard equipment. The training wasn't as good as what I'd been used to, and I could see a lot of the training was, you know, in some ways dangerous compared to the training I'd received before. And we um, ended up deploying, and we got based in a, a checkpoint, which is basically just like um, an old Afghan farmer's house in a village that we'd taken over and fortified. And um, we'd patrol that three times a day. So you're barely getting any sleep. You might be getting four hours sleep a night if you're lucky. Plus you'd be stagging on the camp. You'd be doing three patrols a day, eating rations. You know, it's baking, baking hot, like 40, 50 degrees or something stupid. Also, this camp we was in had no access by vehicle. So we'd have to literally march out a few miles to get any supplies and then march all the way back in again. You know, it was just really, um, really tiring and really monotonous and mundane. And then... Nothing seemed to be happening at all. And then I'd say about a month into it, it was on a um, just a, another patrol, standard patrol, for what I couldn't see as any reason. All these patrols seemed more pointless than all the ones I'd done on my last tour, you know, because the last tour, we was only going out on specific operations for specific reasons. But this one, we were just patrolling and patrolling for um show of force, you know, just to show we were there, basically. The guy behind me stepped on an IED, so they bury IEDs, which is an improvised explosive device. And there's different ways that these can be, you know, detonated. But one is they'll place a pressure pad in the floor, so when you step on it, it'll blow up. 
so the guy behind me, you know, he'd lost both his legs and that was the first time I'd seen, you know, one of my comrades, like an extreme injury, I guess, you know, he'd, he'd lost both his legs and his arm was like snapped off and he wasn't really conscious and stuff like that. I think that's the first time I shifted because I remember seeing his face and he was, it was almost like a look of like, what the hell has just happened or, you know, what what have I done in a way? I don't know if that was what I think, but that's what I interpreted it as. And that just had a big shift in my mind as to what what I was doing and what I was involved in, I think. Well, I mean, not only are you seeing someone that you're working alongside have a life-changing injury, but I guess you're also thinking, well, that could have been me. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So the three of us walked over this ID and we must have missed it by, you know, I don't know how much we missed it because we all walk in something called a barmer lane. So everyone will walk exactly in the same steps or try to as the person in front, obviously, because if he's walked there, it's safe hmm. and you could step on an ID if you step left or right. And he did, obviously must have stepped out of this lane and stepped on it. So it must have been really, really close to this ID. Yeah, I think that's the first time I'd seen up close one of my own comrades, you know, really, really badly injured. But yeah, that that night, the, the RSM and the CO flew out to our CP and that's who told us that he died. Yeah, and that was quite a big a big hit. That was the first time I'd actually had any physical emotion, I think, to someone dying. I remember just having like the wind knocked out of my sails, I think. To see someone like that go in such a, I guess a simple way you know he wasn't like it was in a firefight and he'd messed up his drill and got shot he was just walking and patrolling and he just stood on this IED you know it's like a look look at the draw thing so I think that had a big big shift in my mind as to what I was a part of and actually it doesn't matter how good a soldier you are anyone's susceptible to this you expect to go to Afghan it's going to be this like action-packed adventure everyone's going to come back all right maybe someone will get a few scars and stuff but then to actually see someone died and there wasn't even in this action packed contact or it was just we were walking bang he was dead you just think yeah you just think oh my god that was what it's almost seemed needless Hmm. so 10 days after that the guy in front of me stepped on an IED I was sort of marching not probably about you know five meters behind him or something and he stepped on this IED and then I got a load of blast and like um, shrapnel to the face and then we both got flown out and he lost both his legs and a few of his fingers and I obviously got away with shrapnel to the face, which I was really, really lucky, you know. So you get flown to Bastion Hospital. And actually the first thing I remember, I was lying in this sort of like hospital bed, like a triage bit, I guess. And this woman come in and said, oh, I've been looking for something like this for ages. And she went back out and come in with a camera and said, ah, oh, I'm just going to take a picture of this. So she took a picture of me. There's a, a big poster now. So they use this in a lot of training recruitments because I was wearing my ballistic goggles when the shrapnel went off in my face. The only bit that wasn't like pepper potted and bloody was my eyes. So they use this picture now to What? Yeah. <laughs> she didn't ask you, do you mind if I take your picture? She just gave she just, took I think she picture. just did it, yeah. Yeah. And now it's used in as like a, a training aid, so it's on posters in around like training areas and in the army and stuff. But like a lot of my friends always take pictures of it when they see it and send it to me and stuff. Wow. But yeah, I've got I mean, you know, big to be fair, obviously it did save your sight, right? Wearing that yeah, equipment. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it worked, obviously. But But yeah. that's not the first thing you would think. <laughs> no, it's not the first thing I would done. think of. No, no, no. No. But I think at the time I was just so elated that I'd survived. survived. Also, I don't want to go back to war again. That was what I was thinking. So I think when I got flown home I was I was happy. Only recently have I spoke to her mum about this. I never really spoke to her about this at all. Like she said, um, She'd, she'd always be waiting for the phone to ring, you know, thinking that I'd been injured, like, for some reason. I think, I don't know what it was, but I, for some reason, knew that something was going to happen on this tour, and then she must have had an inkling as well. And then um, she said she had this, like, weird dream or something, and then she woke up, and then a phone call came, just, like, randomly, and told her I'd been injured, and then she was, like, obviously, like, distressed and crying and stuff. 
when she first saw me at the hospital, like my face was, you know, mangled basically. And, you know, I can't imagine what that's like for a month to see. Yeah, it must be horrific. What psychological support was there for you? There's this thing called TRIM, which is uh, Trauma Incident Management or something, which a few people are trained in the army. Once, like, an incident happens, you'll be trimmed, but it's usually by your sergeant major, so someone that's in charge of you. and Someone that you have to report to and yeah, yeah. follow so, their orders. Yeah, you'd be, you'd be sent to the sergeant major's office, and that's this is what I remember, and, and he basically just said, are you suffering with anything? And obviously I wasn't going to say yes to my sergeant major, because obviously that would make you seem weak and... You didn't want to be known as that guy, so you just said no, no, no. And he said, right, then, see you later, and that was about it. That's all you got. So, you do go on to Civvy Street. Yeah, I left, and I originally started working at factories because I had, like, no qualifications, so the only thing I could do was work in factories, and that was really hard. Society at large doesn't anymore really recognise the skills that people genuinely do learn when no. they're serving. Well, I've actually got a list of all the qualifications that I've got there, so I thought it'd be interesting to share. Because you always get told there's these, like transferable qualifications and stuff well when you get into civil street this is transferable qualification but in my experience you know i've got no qualifications at all to offer anyone so it'd be like um you know weapons training or um fitness assessments and you know all these type of things match training which is like escape and evasion training you know just things like that that just don't really qualify you for anything in civil street you know so you'd think that maybe there are obvious parallels with working in security or i think that's right i think um you know, with security, you have got a lot of things to offer a security firm. But I think at the time, you know, my way of thinking, I didn't want to go to a war zone again. I didn't want to be in this security in Iraq. I wanted to do something completely new. I'd had enough of the army. But doing something new is really hard because, like you say, all the qualifications you have got are not transferable at all to anything new. But to security, yeah, they probably are quite transferable. And you can earn a lot of money as well, which is, I think, a big draw for people. I'd really struggled to just be a part of these civilians and even the way they were talking and the things they talked about, I didn't really have any empathy with. Any aspect of the army that come up, I'd always shut it down really quick. I was in the break room once and I said, I was in the army and they was like, oh, were you in Afghan? And I was like, yeah. Were you on the front line then? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden someone parked up and got, oh, you might not want to talk about all this. And then after that, no one ever talked about it again. But I was actually quite relieved because, you know, I didn't want to talk about it. And once um, this guy from the TA come in and tried to recruit people from the for the TA and obviously everyone told him I was in the army and he'd come back and offered me loads of well, 10 grand I think it is for an ex-regular to join the TA but I still didn't do it because I didn't want to join but I was still struggling because I'd left the army of my own accord and I really didn't want to be in the army but um, I couldn't survive outside the army and I couldn't see any other way of surviving other than being in the army so and you're how old at this point? 23 I mean, um, that is not an age at which to be thinking, oh, I can see no way out of this. You know, that's an age at which a lot of people who choose to go to university haven't even graduated yet. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. The level of responsibility given in the army is quite high, isn't it? So maybe you feel older. And being 23 in the army is like a fairly senior um, rifleman or lance corporal, you know. So then to be back in the bottom and the lowest of the low is really, really hard. Yeah, I just couldn't see any way of earning the type of money I was earning. You know, I was used to earning, you know, say a grand and a half a month, but no rent or anything was coming out of that or just my money whereas i was outside the army earning a thousand pound a month and having to pay 600 quid a month for rent plus food and all this type of stuff i had no money and i think there was twice where i filled out the full application to rejoin the army and i said that's it i can't survive out the army i'm joining back in the army and my girlfriend would be threatening to leave me and crying and my mum would be crying and then um, i decided not to do it in the end i got out of the factory and went to um, university doing filmmaking which is something i really wanted to do and I thought, right, this is my new start now. This is going to be my life. I'm going to change my life. So the first year I did really well, but I was still in this weird state, even worse than trying to fit in with people that work in factories. 
was um trying to fit in with students <laughs> who were like even younger and there's so many different types of personalities that i've never seen before and i actually remember being sat down on one of the first lessons and it was a directing lesson it was all sat down they said oh just introduce all yourselves and people were saying oh my name's bob or something i did this at sixth form and then it comes to me and i was like oh yeah i'm when i was in the army for seven years and <laughs> and you can see the instructor like his face just went really weird the second year i started to really really struggle I think the money was getting really, really bad and, um, you know, a lot of things were just coming to a head and I was getting worse and worse with um, depression to the point where I remember being sat in an, an editing class and he was sort of talking to me and I couldn't listen to what he was saying because my head was so full of stuff and people were laughing around me and I remember thinking, what's everyone laughing at? And it just comes to a point where I was so, so unhappy that I just thought, I can't do this anymore. And I text my girlfriend, I can't do this anymore and then just like left the class and never went back, you know. I've been really active on the raising age of enlistment from 16 to 18. I'm not um, a pacifist or anything. I think there, there's, you know, possibly the use for, a uh, legitimate use for the use of force. You know, if someone was robbing my house, I wouldn't just stand there and let them do it. You know, I'd try to get them out. But I'm saying that we shouldn't be enlisting people at 16 years old where their minds aren't fully cognizant of the impact it's going to have on the future. Um, there's been a lot of research showing that your mind isn't actually fully formed until you're about 25-ish anyway you're more willing to make decisions on um, things like action and adventurous and uh, a lot more risk involved when you're 16. And and these are all the things that the military play on in their advertising. You can see, you know, you see the old adverts for the action, for the adventure, for the travel, you know. And what is the situation internationally? I read Britain is one of the only countries that still does use child soldiers. Yeah, so we're one of 20 countries in the world that actually still enlist people at the age of 16. And also we've got a, you know, a cadet force that you can enlist at 13. That's obviously not the army, but you're still being trained in a lot of tactics. And also now they're trying to get military ethos into schools where they're trying to get a cadet force into every state school in the UK. Yeah, there's big incentives for schools to have these cadet forces. Like, for instance, the army might say, we'll build this swimming pool if you have a cadet force in your school, etc. And that's just another way of building this sort of ethos as to people join the army, which they say isn't recruiting, which is, you know, laughable. Um, so you see that as something quite sinister, do you? Yeah. You know, I can see why people think, well, you know, you learn skills and it's a way of making friends. But I can see, you know, what the actual meaning is, you know. It's designed to inject this idea into children's minds that the army is a fun, adventurous thing to do and a, a great career for you to go on to when you're older, you know. So the army doesn't actually need to have 16 to 18-year-olds to fill their ranks. That's just, that's a policy that's been intended. It's not a necessity. So they can still get 18 to, you know, 32-year-olds, I think it is, in the infantry. Um, so they're still going to get recruits, but they're going to get, you know, recruits that are actually able-minded maybe to think about their decisions and the future. And also they've had the time then to do education possibly and explore other avenues. And Whereas at 16, you're not thinking about that. I've, I've described to you how hyper-focused I was and mm. how that's really immature thought, really. You know, I wasn't thinking about anything other than what I wanted to do. And nothing else mattered to me, so... I was shocked when you said it was 15 years and nine months. Yeah. And that's not even 16, is it? I mean, 16 no. at least is the age where you can smoke and you can have sex and yeah, you can get yeah. married. 15 and nine months is the age of nothing at all. <laughs> yeah, well, 15 years and nine months, you can't start training them, but that's when you can first start the enlistment process. Yeah. yeah. And then you join at 16, yeah. So your campaigning's have it raised to 18? Yeah, so I, yeah, well, I'd like to raise it to, you know, older than that. You know, people that join the army are generally good people and they join the army because they want to do something to help other people or you know use their fitness or their bravery to do something good 
It's just that that message is sort of manipulated in a way that um, I don't agree with. I just um, think it's a moral issue that we shouldn't be joining at 16. I mean, the phrase child soldiers is yeah. not one that is used by the British government. It's <laughs> no, not of course one it's that the not, army no. Used. no, no, of course it's not, no. Well, you can't even play Call of Duty until you're 18 legally. That's an 18-year-old game, you know, so how can you then say we're going to put people through, you know, a year's intensive infantry training to kill people course, you know? It's just crazy. It's really crazy. When you have a shower now and you get out and you look in the mirror and you see that tattoo on your chest, yeah, what do you think? <laughs> well, I've got a few tattoos, so I've got... Uh, my old cat badge I've got like a set of military jump wings on my arm you've got a series of numbers on your arm yeah yeah if you put that in Google it'll come at the exact place where I got injured in Afghanistan I've actually really wanted to get a lot of them covered up you know because I, I want to move away from it you know that's that was a past part of me that I don't really want to represent anymore but the one on my chest is so big that I don't think I'll be able to get it covered up anyway it just really shows you what people are capable of getting you to do this cat badge meant so much to me it meant more than my family or my friends or anything like that. I, was, I got it tattooed over my over my heart, where it's like more, most people get maybe their mum or something, you know, a portrait of their dead granddad or something. Whereas I got my cat badge, you know, it meant that much to me. Wayne Sharrocks there. You can find out more about him and the documentary that he's crowdfunding on his website, Wayne Sharrocks. Dot com. Uh, Wayne also works alongside an organisation called Veterans for Peace. They put us in touch. You can find out more about them and their campaign to raise the age of enlistment at veteransforpeace.org. The Foxhole's up next after this. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's that moment in the show where we talk about love and moisture and fannies and dicks with Alex Fox. It's the Foxhole. Hello. Hello, my darling. I'm just busy ejaculating into the eardrums of our listeners. That's kind of not an unpleasant image, actually, whereas if Ollie Pitt said it, it would be horrendous. It still would involve me wrapping my legs around. Uh, yeah, let's not think about it too hard. It, it would involve getting a new pair of earphones, which frankly is expensive these days. Especially if they're Bluetooth. How are you? I am excellent, thanks, Ollie. I've been talking a lot this week about the fact that recently the government made sex education compulsory in schools. Hooray! Which I've been fighting for for a long time. Was it not completely compulsory before? No, there were some schools who could get out of it, so to speak. Oh, yeah, faith schools and stuff like that. Yeah, and also some free colleges. And it just it wasn't a compulsory part of the curriculum. And although it is great now that it is, there's still a lot of work to be done. I'm an ambassador for a sexual health charity called Brooke, and we're now concentrating on putting together a training programme for teachers so that when they are giving this information to students, mm. they're giving them decent sex education. Because a lot of teachers have either... They don't really know what to say themselves or they don't feel confident in teaching that kind of subject. Yeah, I mean, it's a classic phone in this. I know from my years hosting on LBC, um, you know, should sex education be compulsory? And the, the, the classic sort of Daily Mail version of this is for five-year-olds, as if you say to a five-year-old, you know, this is a penis, 
this is a vagina, this is a gimp mask. It's like, no, <laughs> you introduce the idea of just love and relationships, right, early, and well, then actually, when they're older, you bring you it on You do identify genitalia to young, to very young people, okay. like five-year-olds. But, but that's not, but not erections and ejaculation. No, and, but, and a lot of people do get very upset and say, well, why does my five-year-old need to know the difference between a penis and a vagina? That's actually a child protection thing. Mm. Unless you teach very young people what their privates are and that it's okay for them to touch them in a private place you know if they're not in public but it's not okay for anyone else to touch them then you leave them vulnerable to being taken advantage of by predators yeah and there's all this stuff now with internet culture isn't there to do with particularly younger girls being asked to perform on camera you know for their boyfriends and everyone else in the playground which is just vital that they understand that the consent is part of that exactly and this is this is what's happening now we're trying to develop programs to to teach young people about uh, looking after yourself online it's really fascinating stuff and it's it's brilliant that we're making such great progress with regards to education but i think a lot of people were of the view that once it was made law once it was made compulsory part of the curriculum that that was great job sorted all done the real work now starts here i mean we got 45 minutes once a school career and the best thing about it was it was taught by my mate's mum she was <laughs> oh, the school nurse mate. <laughs> yeah i remember we had a chat all about how to put a condom on a banana mm. and then a talk about menstruation and then the teacher going and now you can go to your next period at the end of the class and everyone <laughs> falling about laughing thinking that was the flipping funniest thing that they've ever heard uh, if you want to buy yourself a condom or two or ten or hundreds uh you should go to mycondom.com who sponsor our listener question every week on the Foxhole. Alex, remind us of their excellent service. Well, they do all sorts of excellent things. If you order before 3pm on any given day, oh, then yeah. they will dispatch your order on the same day. Wow. And they also stock flared condoms, which are sort of like <laughs> bell bottoms for your bell end. They've got a flare at the end. of. They're shaped with a flare at the end of them. So if you want your nads to look like ABBA, they're sorted. <laughs> uh, right. This week's question comes from a man who is choosing to remember anonymous and says Alex within the last couple of months I've become interested in yif me neither and furry erotic art I don't like people in fur suits I think we're beginning to understand what yif might mean Uh, but erotic images really turn me on should I tell my girlfriend I've had for a year and five months and will she find it Weird. Well, let's define it first then. What's YIF? Okay, well, (laughs) before I tell you about YIF, I need to tell you about the furry fandom. Have you ever heard about the furry fandom? I mean, I've read about sort of people who fantasise about members of One Direction. It sounds a bit like that, but with wool. No, not quite. Uh, Furries, or the furry fandom, are people who are fans of anthropomorphic animals, anthropomorphised animals. Like Scooby-Doo. Yeah, yeah, animals with human personalities and characteristics. They want to fuck (laughs) Scooby-Doo. No, they don't necessarily want to fuck Scooby-Doo. It's actually not sexual for a lot of people. They just enjoy the idea of animals with with human personalities. Well, so do I. I like Disneyland. What's that got to do with sex? Actually, a lot of people who are part of the furry fandom cite uh, Disney's Robin Hood as the as as the thing the film that got them into it. They okay. loved that as a kid and then they they loved there that. There are some sexy animals in that they, too. I get that. Yeah, Maid yeah. Marion. So, if you're a furry, 
you might enjoy artwork that shows anthropomorphic animals and you might have what's called a fursona which is your own animal identity that you role play and you might wear a fursuit which is essentially a a complicated mascot outfit you know those big animal mascot outfits that you see at baseball games and whatnot but you may have either built yourself or uh, commissioned someone to build for you that shows your unique furry personality okay so it's a bit like george galloway and big brother saying can i drink the milk for some people, but it's if you think of it as just a big cosplaying thing, Fine. really, but okay. you invent your own character. Right, so what's yif? Yif is, or originally the word yif is uh, the sound that Arctic foxes make when they're mating. So they go yif, 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 yif. But it has now come to mean two things within the furry community. Uh, If something's described as yif or yiffy, it means sexy or attractive. Mm. It's kind of used in quite a playful way rather than a pervy way. Like if you say, oh, yiffy, it just means hot, you know. And also there's a backronym. So it's been sort of uh, reverse engineered to also stand for young, intensely fuckable furry. Okay, so this listener is into that stuff he's looking at the artwork and drawings or digital paintings of furry artwork are massive within that community it's a really creative bunch of people well, what do they show do they show sex between different not species all the, of animals not no not no uh, not all the time no that would be ridiculous <laughs> well I, I'm, I'm keen to draw a distinction between bestiality or zoophilia and furries those two are very different things furries by and large do not want to have sex with real animals and they don't fantasize about having sex with real animals there's a venn diagram though isn't there there must be i mean the fact that you want to spell out this difference suggests to me that there's some overlap no i'm spelling it out because it's a common misconception People think, oh, sexy animals, you want to have sex with animals. No, it's finding those that kind of cartoon thing attractive. And I must uh, must emphasise that for a lot of people who are part of furry groups, it isn't about sex. It's about amateur dramatics. It's about being theatrical. It's about hanging out with a bunch of people who like drawing and mating, making costumes the same as you. Okay, so why would um, he they, be embarrassed at all about telling his girlfriend about it if it's not about sex? Because I mean, he's written to a sex be, section of a podcast. Because He thinks it's about sex. Because yif art has a sexual side to it. It's sexy drawings of animals with personalities. So, and often the sexual characteristics of those characters are emphasized so you might have a picture of a sexy bunny girl with massive tits or a picture of a of a of a wolf in dungarees with a huge schlong or something it's not odd and there's nothing to feel guilty about at all you're looking at a sexy picture that happens to be of an invented character yeah but his question is should i tell my girlfriend will she find it weird and we don't know without knowing her but i think it's probably safe to say that most women would find it weird initially if they'd never come into contact with this perhaps but why should this person if this guy is just looking at these saucy cartoons to get himself off in private and he's already said i don't like people who dress up in fursuits so he doesn't want his girlfriend to suddenly start dressing like a mascot and actually having sex in those outfits which would be that would be damn hard because they're really heavy and hot some of them have have inbuilt fans to keep their wearers cool to ask the question he doesn't ask the implicit question when she finds it weird, how does he explain to her what he's into and, you know, make it non-threatening and inclusive? In the same way that I've just described it now. But 
I think the larger question here is, are you obliged when you're in a partnership to show your partner what you wank to? Mm. If your partner said, what porn do you watch? Would you mm. feel obligated to, to show her everything or to tell her all the ins and outs of, of, of what you were... What no, you do if, the hand if, shandy to. If, if I didn't want her to be involved in that particular fantasy, then no, I guess not. Yeah, and I don't think he does want her to be involved mm. in his furry fantasy of his. It's purely a fantasy that's masturbatory for him. Mm. So I don't think that he necessarily has to tell her. But like you say, if she finds it, then they'll have to <laughs> have a little chat. What she might ask is, are you a furry? Do you want to dress up? Do you want me to dress up? But as with any passion, there are degrees to which you can be interested in it. And it doesn't sound like for him it goes much beyond liking the artwork. Fur enough. <laughs> if you have a question for next week's show, what should you do with it? Head on over to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, click on the feedback form and send me whatever question is troubling your little mind. And if you are going to have sex with a furry, if you are, best wear a condom, best buy that from mycondom.com. Absolutely. And if you use the code FOXHOLE, F-O-X-H-O-L-E, you get 15% off. Well, that is almost it for this week's Modern Man, but I do just have time to squeeze in a new man ambassador. It's Rip, who wrote on iTunes USA, Despite being well outside your show's expected demographic, I'm a boomer, and an American to boot, I find your program informative, interesting, and entertaining. Uh, thank you, Rip. Americans are most welcome, even the ones with a few grey hairs. And I now pronounce you Ambassador for Baby Boomers. I'm very glad that you enjoy the show. You, you may not enjoy today's track, though. It is drum and bass. Uh, I bet you enjoy our theme, though. That's by Django Django from their brilliant first album. And here it is, the new track by Cove. It's called All or Nothing, and it features the dulcet tones of singer Joseph J. Jones. It's available to stream now. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.